0: Decades ago, a novel called The Red Tent transformed the way we think about the women of the Bible. Anita Diamond's 1997 novel gave the biblical matriarchs their own stories, their own voices, and agency. In this episode of Can We Talk, author Anita Diamond, the Reverend Gloria White Hammond, and Rabbi Liza Stern discuss the Red Tent's lasting impact, both within the Jewish community and beyond. This is a special episode of Can We Talk, recorded in front of a live audience. We hope you'll enjoy the lively conversation. Welcome to the first live taping of Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. I'm Nahani Rouse, host and producer of Can We Talk. I'm Judith Rosenbaum. I'm the executive director of
1: JWA, and it is fabulous to be here tonight. Thanks to all of you for coming (laughs)
0: Over the course of the program, we'll discuss the way The Red Tent addresses sexual violence and sexual empowerment. We'll look at the role the book has played in helping women relate to biblical texts. And we'll hear from a few of the many spin-off organizations that have adopted the concept and the name The Red Tent.
1: And of course, we're also going to be talking about storytelling and about reimagining history, which is what the Jewish Women's Archive is all about finding ourselves in history, and representing our stories in our own voices. So I'm going to introduce our panelists. Now, of course, Anita, who is sitting directly to my right, needs no introduction. Um, she's part of the reason why we're all here. Um, but I will say that she is the author of The Red Ten, which has been published in 25 countries, um, and as well as four other novels. And She began her career as a journalist and has uh, published several guides to Jewish life and life cycle events, many of which are now being updated for the next generation. Um, Rabbi Liza Stern is sitting next to Anita, and she is the acting director of Religious and Spiritual Life and Jewish chaplain at Brandeis, and also the rabbi at Congregation Eitz Chaim in Cambridge. And all the way to the right is Reverend Gloria White-Hammond, who is co-pastor of Bethel AME Church in Boston and the Swartz Resident Practitioner in Ministry Studies at Harvard Divinity School. She is also a medical doctor and worked for nearly 30 years as a pediatrician at the South End Community Health Center. We're so glad that you're all here with us tonight. For those of you who might need a refresher, The Red Tent reimagines the story of the book of Genesis from the perspective of the women which is a perspective that is mostly absent, if not entirely absent, actually, from the original text. And let me just remind you to orient us a little bit. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel. But he also has a daughter, Dina, the daughter of Leah and Jacob. And Dina is the only daughter of Jacob who's named in the Bible. So I'm going to invite Sarah Grustra, who is an alumna of JWA's Rising Voices Fellowship, to share a
2: passage from the novel's prologue.
0: In this passage, Dina speaks directly to us, the readers, across the generations.
2: Now you come to me, women with hands and feet as soft as a queen's, with more cooking pots than you need, so safe in childbed and so free with your tongues. You come to me hungry for the story that was lost. You crave words to fill the great silence that swallowed me and my mother's and my grandmothers before them. I wish I had more to tell of my grandmothers. It is terrible how much has been forgotten, which is why, I suppose, remembering seems a holy thing. So,
1: we wanted to start by talking a little bit about your relationship to the story of Dina and to The Red Tent. And I think to do that, we need to begin with you, Anita, in terms of your, how you came to the story of Dina, how you discovered this story and saw it as an opportunity for imagining something different.
3: I actually did not start with Dina. I thought I would write a novel about uh, the relationship between Rachel and Leah, the two uh, primary mothers in this family and I was fascinated by this multiple wife situation, and I couldn't figure out what the plot was. So I kept reading in Genesis, and I got to Genesis 34, which is the story of Dina. And it's a horrific story, um, but the thing that leapt out at me was the fact that she doesn't say anything. What happens to her is described by her two of her brothers, and they
0: have an agenda, and they had a lot to gain by the way they told the story. In the book of Genesis, Dina's brothers claim that she was raped and the rape becomes an excuse for them to slaughter all the men in the nearby city. In The Red Tent, Dina tells a very different version of the story, one in which she's in love and empowered. She's devastated when her brothers murder her lover, but she rebuilds her life.
3: So I thought I would tell the story from her perspective. That's where, that's where it came from. I was intrigued by what, what might have happened from her perspective. So what did that
1: process look like for you in terms of imagining that?
3: You know, I wrote this 25 years ago. It's like, people ask me about these questions, and it's like, what was I thinking? I really, people ask very specific questions. And I do know that I did not wanna write a book about her as a victim. I was very clear that I wanted to celebrate her agency and women's agency in general. Even in the text, she's, there's something nervy about her because she goes out into the city, and that is not something unmarried young women did. So it's, clearly she was breaking some boundary. And um, and I also didn't think that, that the story necessarily support the way the story is told even in the Bible supports what her brothers said happened to her. So I didn't want to make her a victim. So we'll get to the
1: text in a little bit. Um, but I'd love to hear from you, Liza and Gloria, about how you encountered the red tent and um, and what your relationship has been with it. Here's
0: Rabbi Liza Stern.
4: You know that what's that movie Jerry Maguire, where um, she says you had me from hello, Dina had me from hello. Because I remember reading it and I thought it was true. I mean, I really thought that oh wow, like this is actually what happened and this is and I I did. I think I just assumed that it was the truth and I was so grateful for it because I knew the story and the Torah, I knew it really well, but I didn't know what had happened to Dina and I was so grateful to Anita that she sh- shared with us what had actually happened. And
0: this is Reverend Gloria White-Hammond.
5: Well, I, um, uh, I have come through from a tradition, pretty much African-American Christian tradition where I had not heard very much favorable about women's stories. We didn't hear much about them. And um, when, uh, when I did, it seemed like they were cautionary tales well, I Certainly don't want to be like that. Or they were pretty bland like, and I don't think I want to be like that either. So when I stumbled on the red tent, I was first of all just thrilled that it was a story about a woman who had agency it was very different from what I'd understood from reading the text. Um, and for me, it was. An, I was just being introduced to the whole notion of midrash, which, is, of course, is very familiar in, um, uh, for you all, but not so familiar in the African-American tradition. I say that we will, we will certainly imagine to some extent, but it pretty much better find its way back to the text. So to have something that was such a departure from the text was unusual. And I was also intrigued because there were so many African-American Christian women were reading this book and just loving it so i came to it from a number of perspectives and i'm so glad i did
1: will you tell us a little bit about the red tent group that you were part of wow (laughs) (laughs) so again i wanted to be in dialogue
5: have a group of african-american christian women in dialogue with jewish women and to understand uh how uh how you all saw women in text um, how the lives of those women informed even the lives that we are living today. The plan was to start with Red Tent, but we very quickly looked at other women's stories as well. And we continued to meet for
1: about five years. Liza, I know that you played a role in in getting the Red Tent out to um, many rabbis. So I think it, it was your idea. It was
4: Anita's idea. Let's get this book into the hands of all the women rabbis. Um, I happen to be the chair of the women's rabbinic network at the time so I was able to facilitate that because of my role at the time and I think I you know the publisher said okay give me the addresses and I wrote a cover letter and told everybody they should use this and have book groups in their congregations so all I did was write a cover letter but I got so much credit for it because (laughs) my colleagues kept still last year at a Co- women 's rabbinic Network conference someone came up to me and said, "You know that really transformed our women 's group at our congregation twenty years ago, so it was a wonderful success, and it just kept going
1: Gloria, you mentioned Midrash, which is you know the, the process of interpreting text and kind of reading between the lines um, and I know Anita that you when we've talked about this in the past you've been a little resistant when i've wanted to talk about the red tent as midrash <laughs> um, but but it's very clear that you were familiar you had you had read a lot of midrash and had you know were, were, some. were fitting some. we're fitting the story into some of the different you know responding to different theories that were out there and overturning them in some cases in some cases riffing off of them so can you say a little bit about how you see this book fitting or not fitting into a midrashic tradition
3: I, I don't think it's midrash. Actually, because of something you said, because I think classical midrash, anyway, does go far, but it always tries to get back to the text and make a connection, if not with that story, but another one. So even though it's, they can be wildly imaginative, they do bring you back to the story. And I, that was not my intention with this book. This is a piece of historical fiction. I stopped looking at the text. This is uh, jazz. This is an improvisation. My interest was to to tell a story in the voice of this voiceless character from this very famous family. If I had really known what I was doing, <laughs> I would have been afraid to do it, I think. I, I, and, but I do know that be, what I know about Midrash and the, and the way that Jews handle text is that we have enormous freedom with our, with our sacred texts and that you can turn it on its head, uh, according to the Talmud, right? That, And it had 600,000 faces. There is no one correct interpretation. So that gave me a lot of freedom to put all that stuff together. And that's what happened.
1: Liza, as a rabbi, how do you you read this in terms of the relationship to Midrash? There's always that
4: conversation about um, intention versus impact. And it wasn't Anita's intention to write Midrash. But the impact of the story was... um, It was... It watered our souls. I mean, we, we were parched for this kind of midrash. We we needed this stuff. It it opened up the text for us, and it so it it lived and continues to live as midrash for us. And uh, even though Anita didn't intend that, I, I think that's why it resonates so powerfully for us. Is because midrash does feel somehow
3: true. You know what? I'm I've stopped. I'm really. It, it's whatever the readers want it to be. People have, really, it's out of my hands. It, it's grown up. It has its own life in so many different ways. It belongs to readers. It does not belong to me anymore. It belongs to you. It belongs to everybody who reads it and has a reaction to it. One of the
5: ways that it has especially been helpful for me is that it's informed the way I approach um, sermon development around women. So I, I typically um, preach from women's texts, and the more obscure the better. One of my goals is to, is to have her tell me her story so that I can get her story out. And Red Tint helped me to listen in a way that I don't know I was listening before in terms of who these women are.
3: What I've heard from a lot of people is that it, it makes you look at the names that in the Bible where there's nothing, there's just a name. So you have to wonder why is this name even in this list? There's silence there and there's room. If you know there's room, then you can see it and you can fill it.
1: Even an invitation in some yeah. ways. And I think for you opened up that invitation in a, in a very big way. One other thing I'm thinking about as we have two female clergy sitting here is how, and you've spoken to this a little bit, Gloria, in terms of your own preaching, but um, what the reception is like as a woman religious leader to, to encounter this text in this way.
4: I was younger 20
0: years ago. <laughs> it's shocking. Uh, Weren't we all, right? Uh,
4: So I think there was some way in which I was unconsciously, let's say, um, asking for permission to be an authority within the Jewish community. Mm. I think somehow we early vintage women rabbis, we were just constantly trying to convince ourselves of our authenticity. Dina's voice functioned in a way for me, when I was younger, that was very, it was very exciting, because she just, she was confident. And, and she was, again, remember I thought, this is a true story, like, Anita had found some, like, DVD or something. But, and I thought, well, you know, this was thousands and thousands of years ago, and she's so confident, and this is all true, and men appropriated all the stories, and no wonder we didn't hear them, but now we're back. I do think it gave us a sense of uh, confidence. Well, I'd say for me,
5: again, it just uh, the, the, the validation that women's stories matter. It's not recorded that Dina and these women said so much, but we know they've had something to say. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so one of my... Real delights is again giving voice to these sisters.
0: Let's bring Dina's voice back into the conversation with another passage from the Red Tent's prologue, again read by Sarah Grustra.
2: We have been lost to each other for so long. My name means nothing to you. My memory is dust. This is not your fault or mine. The chain connecting mother to daughter was broken and the word passed to the keeping of men who had no way of knowing. That is why I became a footnote, my story a brief detour between the well-known history of my father Jacob and the celebrated chronicle of Joseph, my brother. On those rare occasions when I was remembered, it was as a victim. Near the beginning of your holy book, there is a passage that seems to say I was raped and continues with the bloody tale of how my honor was avenged.
1: So let's talk about this this particular moment and the way that this story intersects with the movement of women telling their truth about violence and, and also about agency. One of the central reimaginings of the book is imagining the story of Dina as a love story rather than as a story of rape. Um, in the Torah, of course, we don't hear anything about Dina's experience from her own voice, as from her perspective, as you've said. Um, and the rabbis, of course, in their interpretations could not possibly imagine women's sexual agency. That just wasn't a framework that they had any access to. Um, so here's what we're given in the biblical text, just to, to give us a sense of what we're working with here. This is Genesis 34, verses one and two. Now Dina, the daughter whom Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Shrem, son of Hamor the, the Hivite, chief of the country, saw her, and took her, and lay with her by force. Sometimes it's translated as, and defiled her. So all verbs of things that are being done to her. So by contrast, let's hear the version of the first encounter between Dina and the character who in the Bible is named Shem, but in the red tent is named Shalem. And this passage is going to be read by Emma Mayer, a current Rising Voices fellow. It amazes me to think of all that happened in the space of a silent breath or two.
6: What caused my cheeks to color was the understanding that I would not speak of the fullness and fire in my heart to Leia. He saw me color and his smile widened. My awkwardness vanished and I smiled back. And it was as though the bride price had been paid and the dowry agreed to. It was as though we were alone in our bridal tent.
1: The question had been answered. (laughs) Yeah, there's some steamy scenes in here for those of you who don't remember. Um, so tell us a little bit about this
3: choice to, to reimagine the story in this way. Again, I didn't want her to be a victim. Uh, I also, and I'm not the first person to say this or to have noted that the way he responds um, is to go to her father with and you know, offer a big bride price and the, bu- the brothers say, oh yeah, well, um, well, you can have her if you and all the men in your community get circumcised. And he says yes. He must love her, <laughs> clearly. This is, this is a remarkable thing for somebody who's violated somebody to say, uh, to think that somebody would, you know, no anesthesia, no antibiotics. <laughs> Grown men, it's a horrific request from them, and it's a horrific acquiescence. If you want to rape, you go to Second Kings, where Tamar is raped by her brother, and she begs him not to, and he does it anyway and he throws her out and he afterwards and she goes to another brother and asks for her to redress and they don't. And she's saying what happened to her and no one's listening to her. So in this case, um, I remember when I was working on this, someone said to me that it reminded them of actually life in the American South where it was impossible for white men to imagine that a white woman would voluntarily sleep with, marry, have relations with an African American man. And so it was always rape.
1: And of course, as you know, as we know, there's no there's no way there was no terms for understanding. There was there was, no, there was no concept of consent, right? right? So there's no uh, term for putting that into the story. And and when we start to approach a story with a different lens, we see that there could be other ways of of framing it. One of the things that I see as a scholar of women's history is how often these two pieces of uh, of this narrative are pitted against each other, the idea of um, women as victims of sexual violence and women as potentially having sexual agency. So as we think about um, the story of Dina, both the the little glimpses that are there for us in the original text um, and the much fuller and more beautiful version in The Red Tent, um, and we think about it in this particular moment where we're you know, our society is very much thinking about how do we honor women's experiences and give them room to express them in all their fullness. What can we take from this story uh, in this moment, or does it does it land for us differently in this particular moment?
3: It's funny because when I again, when the first when it was first published, I got a lot of pushback on this. You know, how could you take a rape and make it into a romance? That's that was that was breaking a rule, all kinds of rules. And I think that kind of resonates today, but. To me, it's her silence is the problem, that women's voices are not heard. So we, ne- we don't know from her point of view. We can't know from her point of view, because no one asked, and no one would have listened anyway. So to me, it's about giving women's voices, listening, listening into the silence. We have to invent agency. We have to give ourselves heroes and heroines. So she becomes a heroine in a story in which she was nothing, less than nothing. Right, and the silences sometimes
1: even tell us that there was discomfort around this even at the time, right. that it couldn't be fully ex- explored in the text because they didn't wanna go there necessarily.
3: Yeah. I didn't, they didn't know how right. either. I mean, I, I, I don't wanna blame the framers in a way because they, they had no way of knowing because this was the, that was the way you understood the world. We have complicated reality. Women are, by telling these stories, complicate reality and it's uncomfortable.
1: So we've been talking about The Red Tent in this kind of conceptual way, as a kind of symbol of women's ability to come together and share stories or raise their voices. But of course, The Red Tent in The Red Tent is, is actually also a physical place. Um, and one of the things that uh, is so interesting when you look at the impact of this book is that the idea of an actual Red Tent as a concrete place, as a physical space, has really captured the idea of so many people. Um, And that is part of what we
0: want to explore next. In the book, the Red Tent is a refuge for women and a place to mark the milestones in their lives. They gather in the Red Tent when they have their periods, when they help deliver each other's babies, and when they worship the feminine form of the divine. Let's hear a passage from the book where Dina describes being in the Red Tent when she first starts menstruating. Our reader is Rising Voices Fellowship alumna, Abby Richmond.
2: With every new moon, I took my place in the red tent and learned from my mothers how to keep my feet from touching the bare earth and how to sit comfortably on a rag over straw. My days took shape in relation to the waxing and waning of the moon. Time wrapped itself around the gathering within my body, the swelling of my breasts, the aching anticipation of release, the three quiet days of separation and pause. Although I had stopped worshiping my mothers as perfect creatures, I looked forward to those days with them and the other women who bled.
0: Over the past 20 years, the concept of the Red Tent has kind of escaped from the pages of Anita's book. Women have taken the concept and run with it. There are hundreds of organizations around the world that use the name the Red Tent. Women's circles, family therapists, farmers markets, and at least one nail salon. In this part of the program we're going to hear briefly from a few of the women running Red Tent-inspired organizations. The first one I want to share is the Red Tent Women's Health Center in Sydney, Australia.
7: So we treat women who are trying to fall pregnant, who are pregnant, and in the postnatal period, and even some of the little bubs.
0: This is the co-founder, Naomi House, an acupuncturist, Chinese herbalist, and doula.
7: I was drawn to become a doula as I felt that I wanted to also bring back the red tent for birthing women. Ideally I think it would be wonderful if we could all give birth in red tents <laughs> where women were around to support women. So I believe that concept of the red tent has underpinned how I would like the environment for women to heal and transition through life. These times in women's lives or birth or um periods or even menopause these transitions are not just things to get through things to get over but they're incredibly important sacred times for women that uh need to be more than just held hygienically and learned how to deal with they're they're, they're really there to be honored
0: the next Person that we're going to hear from is a marriage and family therapist who worked in private practice for 25 years and then began working with incarcerated women. My name is
8: Barbara Rohde. Uh, I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I started the Red Tent Women's Initiative in 2012 as a volunteer at the Pinellas County Jail. Most of the women, it's the first time they have felt safe, nurtured with other women. As one woman said to me, Miss Barbara, you and the other staff, you see me the way I've always wanted to be seen.
0: One of the things I love about this iteration of The Red Tent is that it, it demonstrates the idea of women finding freedom and safety within the confines of their environment. Some of The Red Tent spin-offs seem to romanticize women's lives in the ancient world. But in the novel, women are also bought and sold and sometimes beaten. The space that they've created for themselves in the red tent isn't only about celebration. It's also about protection and healing. And here's how the novel inspired Barbara. Wow,
8: I guess the biggest thing that resonated was how women really supported each other and helped each other and how we weren't so isolated or fragmented. Women need this. We're wired to need that time and connection. And I think our society is not allowing for it. We need some red tents and, and we need to start in places where women feel most isolated and broken away from their support system.
0: Our last red tent organization is a more common kind of spin-off. There are literally hundreds of monthly women's spiritual gatherings around the world that use the name The Red Tent.
6: Hi, I'm Allie McPhee. And I'm Allie Schaefer. And we're here with Red Tent Indy. We are a women's community group located in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we have been around for about three years now doing this circle work. We love the concept of the red tent that Anita Diamond's book presents. When I read the book, that was the first time I heard my womb speak. This book has been a foundational piece for me for honoring my bleed, honoring it not as a curse, honoring the cycles of womanhood as a way to really explore these ebbs and flows and receive the magic of death and rebirth processes that come from it so the book was definitely a catalyst we all felt super inspired about the fact to have a space where women could come and surrender and support each other and share their dreams and their goals and really empower each other in a sacred sisterhood so
0: listen to this when they were first starting the group Allie McPhee took an online red tent facilitators course taught by a woman in Melbourne, Australia. You know about this, Anita. (laughs) Now you do. (laughs) This woman has taught women from 43 countries how to facilitate red tent groups. So at Red Tent Indies Monthly Gatherings, a facilitator shares a teaching. There's a meditation, singing, and this is all actually taking place in a red tent.
6: We actually rent a yurt each time we do this event and we decorate it with red tapestries, with candles, we bring dates and snacks and really make it luxurious so women feel like they're entering this sacred space where they can just decompress, be raw, and speak their truth. It's a, a safe space for all women or or those who identify as women to come and just explore their divine feminine. Oftentimes we we have been doing a blue tent, like the men will gather while we have a blue yeah. tent. <laughs> we, I think we kind of
0: just made it up. <laughs> well, so did she. Yeah, true. Does it make a difference to you that the the book and the idea is fictional? I mean,
6: I think there's magic in what you connect to and how you take it in as your own and I mean, I've heard that the book is fictional. Parts of me believe that it's real. Parts of me will always believe it's real. And the fact is that it is kind of real because we are doing it. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about that last question for a minute. Does it matter whether this is historical fact? No.
3: <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. And I, I do want to say that there are menstrual tents and huts throughout pre-modern civilizations, even to this day. And they are not as beautiful for the most part is what I invented. They were actually places in some parts of the world where women or girls in particular are, um, are isolated and it's cold and there's nothing in there with them and it's punishment. It isn't, it isn't this. Um, so, so when people romanticize that history too much, it does make me nervous. Uh, but I don't think it matters. And I also know there are lots of these groups that meet not in a red tent and not in a yurt but meet in people's homes and in many cases, it's, they remind me of consciousness-raising groups that I was in when I was in college, which was very important for me in terms of talking about our bodies and our stories and our families and just bringing things out into the open. So, it's, it's not, so there has
0: been some continuity with this in the past. So having heard these varied interpretations of The Red Tent, Can you reflect for a minute, and and all, all three of you, on the need that this is filling these days for us?
5: I would, again, going back to our group, which was comprised of two different groups of women, what we have celebrated over these years, we talked about this place where we could embrace our differences, not just simply tolerate or accept, but really embrace our differences. And I think that that has become all the more critical in 2018, and um, so it doesn't matter to me whether it's real, you know, it's like, it's real in my heart, (laughs) and it fires the imagination in terms of what's possible. We need so much more of that.
4: Amen. (laughs) I think that there's something about the red tent that said this is valuable, this is
3: sacred stuff,
4: The the Me Too movement is part of valuing the truth that you've
3: had and believing that it matters. And we do find ourselves in a very, I think, exciting, scary Me Too moment uh, that's part of this as well. It's going to be harder and harder to shut us up. Amen, again.
1: I think one of the marks of great literature is that you can talk about it forever Um, and that it continues to have so much to say and feels so relevant and current to this moment as we said and feels like it's part of an ongoing conversation that is rooted in an ancient text and that we are continually rewriting in our own lives and in our own conversations and in the work that uh, each of us is doing and so I thank you for that gift and for sharing a little bit about how that
0: plays out for each of you. We want to thank our panelists, Anita Diamond, Reverend Gloria White-Hammond, and Rabbi Liza Stern. Thank you to our readers, JWA's Rising Voices Fellows, Sarah Grustra, Emma Mayer, and Abby Richmond, and to the entire JWA staff for putting this event together. And thanks to Boston's CJP for a grant that made this first live taping of Can We Talk possible. The Can We Talk team includes me, Nahani Rouse, Judith Rosenbaum, and Rachel King. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. We had production help from Ilana Weinstein. You'll find this podcast episode along with all the others at jwa.org slash talk and anywhere else where you get your podcasts. Spread the word to friends you think would like the show, and thank you so much for coming.
3: Book clubs, book clubs, book clubs are the red tent. Monthly, you go every month, pretty much. You eat, you feed each other, you talk about what's going on in your life. Sometimes you talk about the book. (laughs) And it was Mahjong groups and it was card groups and it was potlucks at church on Sunday morning or in the kitchen at church on Sunday morning where women were doing all the work together. Um, But that's the Red Tent.
4: Women connect and it's natural and it's wonderful and we all know that it's true. But I think we didn't know to value it as sacred stuff. For women, uh, God is found over a cup of tea.